Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Three pastors were sitting together. That's not even the punchline. <laughs> you guys are the easiest crowd I've ever had. <laughs> three pastors were, now you're not even going to laugh at the punchline. <laughs> three pastors were sitting together and they were chatting and the topic came up of prayer. And they were discussing what the best position, like physical position, is to be in when you're praying to get the most out of prayer. And the first pastor said, you know, when I pray, I like to sit down with my head between my hands and, and just meditate and I can drown out the world. And that's the most effective position to be in when you're praying. And the second pastor said, no, 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 no. The most effective position you can be in when you're praying when you can draw closest to God is with standing up, looking up into heaven with your arms stretched out, singing out to God. And the third pastor said, no, 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 no. The, the most powerful position you can be in where you'll feel the closest connection to God is to lay on the ground prostrate with your face in the dirt and cry out to God in that position. While they were having this discussion, there was a telephone repairman who was fixing a phone right next to them. The phones used to be on walls, kids. I don't know if you know that, but. And the telephone repairman said, hey, fellas, I mean no offense, but the best praying I ever did was when I was hanging from a telephone pole. You didn't laugh. Come on. Oopsie. This is all falling apart now. Titan bolt. All right. How do we recover from this? <laughs> you can learn a few things about the way people pray, but you can learn almost everything about what a person prays. For example, if we took your prayer life from this week and we typed it out on a piece of paper and included it as an insert in the bulletin, all of us would learn a lot about you. Uh, we would learn what you love, what you are passionate about, what you care about. We would also learn about what you don't care about, what you're not passionate about, not, what is not important to you. I'm guessing most of us would not want our prayer life published for everyone else to read, maybe because uh, we'd be ashamed of the shallowness of it or the prayerlessness of our hearts and our lives. But today, this is exactly the, what we have before us. We actually have a published prayer that we get to read through, and it is the prayer of Jesus. And it's written out for us so that we can know the heart of our Savior. 
As we walk through John chapter 17 this week and next week in what's been called the high priestly prayer, what surfaces is Jesus's and Jesus's prayer life are two things that are of prominent importance to him. And the first is the glory of the triune God. And the second is the good of his beloved bride, the church. We're going to look at the first of those this week, Jesus' passion for the glory of the triune God. If you would, please open up to John chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you, and we are page 903 on the Red Bible. If you do not own a Bible, that Bible is for you to keep. Today's passage marks a significant transition in the Gospel of John. For the past several months, uh, we've been looking at the, the past few chapters of the Gospel of John, which is the farewell discourse of Jesus in which he's giving his final teachings to his apostles before he departs to go to the cross. Now the cross is growing nearer, the teaching is done, and so Jesus cries out to the Father. And as we study this again, what we will discover is the heart of our Savior, This prayer is written down for us in God's word so that we can study it, so that we can cherish it, but also so that we can pattern our own prayers after it. And so follow along if you would. I'm going to read John 17, 1 through 10, and then I'm going to skip down and read verses 22 through 24. Don't worry, we'll come back and get the other verses next week. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the whole world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Skip down to verse 22 through verse 24. This is a continuation of Jesus's prayer. He says, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Let's pray.
Lord God, thank you for putting this prayer of Jesus in holy scriptures for us to see the heart of our Savior, to conform our heart to the heart of our Savior. Pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, you would do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. In the pastor world, um, pastors will often ask one another, how are things going at your church? And often this is code for, how is attendance at your church? Are you growing? Are you shrinking? How's it going at your church? And they want to know because they want to know if you are a person of importance, if you are a person worth hanging around, someone who is significant. And so I've learned in, in these conversations, I'm not saying that's everyone's motivation, but I think it's there. I've learned in these conversations when people say, how are things at Jacob's Well Church? I'll make a joke and say, you know, they're good. They haven't fired me yet. And I am thankful that you guys haven't fired me yet. So thank you for that. But to be honest, there's, there's part of me that wants to, that wants to parade our accomplishments and, and minimize our failures and share all of these things that happen. And I don't necessarily want to do that in that part of my heart for the glory of God, but so exalt my own glory. Ironically, you know, even if we weren't growing, if we weren't planting churches, if God wasn't doing these awesome things, I'd find something else to glory in. I talk about, oh, you know, I'm not, I, I don't think about those shallow things like numbers, right? And then I would glory in my humility, It's embarrassing to admit, but in the depth of my heart, even as an ordained minister of the gospel, because of my own insecurities, I am often more interested in exalting my name in my kingdom and my glory than I am interested in exalting God's name and God's kingdom and God's glory. Sad to say, your pastor is a glory hog. And he may no longer have a job. <laughs> then my answer would change to that question, by the way. You know, I think self-glorification is the air that we breathe. Again, because of our own insecurities, we promote ourselves to others in very subtle ways. But we want to prove to others and to ourselves that we are significant people. I mean, maybe you can think of some of the achievements that you slip into conversation or some of the statistics you, sleep, you, you sneak into conversations. Maybe you talk about the position you have in your company or the profitability that you uh, produced over the past year. Maybe it's your, your accomplishments or your children's accomplishments or your grandchildren's accomplishments. Maybe it's your win-loss records or accolades or trophies that you got. We are so crafty and subtle at this self-glorification, is it? We get very good at it. Because if we were blunt about self-glorification, it would just come off as arrogance. And that would be self-defeating because it wouldn't promote us. Here's the thing. It's not wrong to share any of these things. not wrong to share what God is doing. It's great to share together and to celebrate it. But I think if all of us are honest, we can see inside of ourselves this hunger for self-glorification that always keeps us hungry. Thankfully, God has not given up on us. And he's refining us and creating in his people 
a heart of self-forgetfulness so that we no longer work towards our glory, but find ourselves in the story of God's glory. I want to approach this text a little bit differently today. A lot of times we just kind of go verse by verse, one, two, three, four. But today I want to approach it chronologically as it displays the glory of God and the glory of Christ. There's a pattern in scripture, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That is the the storyline of the scriptures. And we see that playing here in part in the glory of Christ. And so the first thing I want to look at is the begotten, Christ's begotten glory. Look at verse 5 with me. Jesus says, and now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You're probably familiar with John 3.16 from the King James. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Orthodox Christianity holds that Jesus is eternally begotten from the Father. And from the Father and the Son proceeds the Holy Spirit. What does it mean that Jesus is eternally begotten? Well, the first word I think is pretty, under, pretty easy to understand, hard to grasp, but that Jesus is eternal. That there was not a time when Jesus was not. That Jesus has always existed, but that he's also begotten, meaning that he has come from the Father. This term is used sometimes in describing a woman giving birth to a child. And so Jesus comes from the Father. He's begotten from the Father from eternity past, which again is is mind-blowing to try to wrap our head around. But what is important for us to understand here is that Jesus is claiming that he existed before the world began and that in his existence he was glorious along with the Father and the Spirit. Now in verse 5, Jesus prays for the Father to restore his glory. And if Jesus is praying for his glory to be restored, it means that some of his glory has been lost. You know, if, so, if you know someone who is restoring an old car, the reason why they are restoring the old car is because the car has lost some of its former glory. And so they're seeking to restore that former glory. Jesus says, Father, restore the glory that was given to me before the world began. Now here's the difference. With an antique car, a Model T car, it loses its glory, not of its own volition. The owner doesn't want it to lose glory. It just simply loses glory through decay. But Jesus lost his glory of his own will. He gave it up voluntarily. He laid down his glory. He laid it aside. Philippians 2 puts this so beautifully. It says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, meaning that he was God, he had the character of God, the nature of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, let's pause there for a second. I think a lot of times when we read this word grasp, we think Okay, Jesus wasn't able to think what it would be like to be God. But what it's talking about is he didn't hold on to those things. He didn't grasp on to those characteristics, those qualities, the things he deserved as God. He said he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
Jesus emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of his divinity, but when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself of his divine rights, his divine privileges, and even his glory. Jesus could have, had, could have come to earth in all his glory, but, but everyone would have perished who would have seen it. And so Jesus sets it aside and he becomes a man like you and me. This is what we celebrate at Christmas in the incarnation that God sunk himself into human flesh. He didn't walk around with a halo around his head. He didn't walk around glowing except for the Mount of Transfiguration. But he was like us. He came to be with us and be one of us. There's a story of a, of a ruler in Persia who was a good king, a loving king, a wise king. And he wanted to know how his people lived. And so from time to time, he would put on pedestrian clothing and he would go out and be amongst the people. He would set aside his privileges and the glory of the crown. And he would go and he would dwell with the beggar and with the homeless. One time he went with, to, to be with a guy who lived in a cellar. And he went there and was with him and, and he ate the food that the guy ate. And he spoke cheerfully and kindly to the man. He went back and, and changed into his kingly clothes and later came back and revealed his identity to this man. I think of Undercover Boss, if you've ever seen that show. And he comes back and he says, I am your king. And the king thought that for sure the man would ask something of him. That's what other people did. But that man asked nothing of him and, and the king asked why he didn't. And the man responded, he said, you left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark, dreary place. You ate the coarse food I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. To others you have given your rich gifts. To me you have given yourself. Friends, this is what we celebrate in the incarnation that Christ set aside his begotten glory. And he was humbled, humbled himself, set it aside and became a man like you and me. But his humility did not stop there. Not only did Christ trade the glory of God for the glory of man, but he even set apart the glory that man has by going to the cross. Look at verse 1 with me again. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Let's pause there for a second. This word hour doesn't necessarily mean a literal 60 minutes. Um, we use this word hour figuratively to talk a specific point in time. Like we'll say, you know, their greatest hour or our greatest hour or his or her greatest hour. And we're talking about a time period in which they lived up to their full potential, right? Now, for most people, they don't know when that hour is coming. Their greatest hour is coming. It's, it's just, it happens. There's an attack and they fight heroically or they're in a game and they play fantastically or whatever it might be. We'll say that was their finest hour. There's a tragedy and they respond heroically. We'll say that was their finest hour. But they don't know that it's coming. But Jesus knows that his hour is coming. Jesus knows his final hour is coming. He knows actually from all eternity. If we look through the Gospel of John, we see in John 2, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. John 4, he says, the hour is coming. John 5, twice he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming. 
in John 7 and 8, so this is almost every chapter it seems like, his opponents want to come and arrest him. And John writes out that they could not arrest him because his hour had not yet come. And then last week, in last week's passage, the end of chapter 16, Jesus says on two occasions, the hour is coming. And so it's this future thing. The hour is coming. The hour has not yet come. The hour is coming. But then look and see how Jesus starts his prayer. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. This hour undoubtedly refers to the hour of Christ's crucifixion. The great persecution and humiliation that he would endure when even he was unrecognizable as a person. He was so scarred and beaten. Most everyone else would consider this their worst hour, but for Jesus, this was the greatest hour of his earthly ministry. Verse 1 again, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. How could anyone be glorified on a cross? Could you imagine how humiliating it would be? I mean, just imagine if you were naked, hung up on that cross for all to see. How humiliating would that be? For the creator of the universe to be hung up there? For people whom he created to spit on him, to hurl insults at him? For him to suffer, for him to die? How could the cross become an object of glory. Christ prays for it because he knows that only the Father could turn the cross, this object of scorn and shame, into an object of glory for Christ and for the Father. Verse 2, two and 3 tells us how, how the cross is transformed into an object of glory. Verse 2, Jesus says, Since you have given him, that is the Christ, authority over all flesh to give eternal life, to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the glory of the cross. That through the deepest, most tragic, most horrific, most embarrassing, most humiliating death. Jesus set aside all of his glory that we could once again know and experience the glory of God. It's so interesting here. You see how John defines, uh, defines how Jesus defines eternal life, the eternal life that he purchased. He says, he says, this is eternal life, that you know God. In John 14, we talked about this, but there are different Greek words for the word know. And they mean different things. So there's one Greek word, oida, which means to know someone or something intellectually. Like we all know Abraham Lincoln. I think we all know him intellectually, right? If you know him personally, let's talk after this service. But we know him intellectually, right? But then there's gnosko knowing, which, which is to know a person intimately. Like a husband would know a wife or a wife would know her husband. It's an intimate knowing and experiencing of another person. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He says eternal life is for you to know, to have a relationship, to be intimately connected with the God of the universe. And so Christ is glorified in the shame of the cross by trading all of his glory, 
by taking on our sin, by taking on our punishment, by taking on our shame, for paying it in full that we could be reunited, brought back into a relationship with a holy God and experience and enjoy his glory for all eternity. Philippians 2 continues and it says, And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And I love this. It says, even death on the cross. Like death is bad enough, but even on the cross, the most shameful of places. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He will get the glory that he is due. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then listen to this, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus traded all his glory so that we could experience God's glory and so that it would promote God's glory throughout the world. This isn't a perfect illustration. I don't know if there is one for this point. But every year, the NFL gives out an award for the Walter Payton Man of the Year. And it's the highest, most prestigious honor they give out to a NFL player who doesn't just play football, but actually makes a difference in the world. This year, a man named Chris Long won the award uh, for his charitable work. In 2015, uh, he went over to Africa to hike a mountain, and he saw what the water that the people were drinking. It was dirty. Uh, it was really dirty. It was nasty. You couldn't even see through it. And so through that experience, he decided to start up a charity in which he would raise money um, to go and to help provide clean water wells in Africa. Besides that, he also started up a charity to help provide uh, education to kids in inner city parts of America who don't have access to great education. And so what he has done is not only has he visited these places and loved on these kids, but he's actually donated lots of his money. One year he donated the first quarter of his salary. This past year he donated his entire salary to these charities. And so they welcomed him up on stage and the people applauded for him and they honored him as, as they should because he was doing an amazing thing for God. And after the speech, he got down off the stage and they were panning the crowd and they found his father. Uh, you may know who he is. His name is Howie Long. He's an announcer. And you could see Howie just choking back the tears, trying not to sob because he's so proud of his boy. You see, Chris, the son, had given up some of his riches very generously to give life literally to hundreds of thousands of people. And through that, not only was he honored, but so was his father. Christian, you may not have an NFL player give up some of their riches for you, but you do have a God who gave up all of his glory for you. And by giving up his glory, he was glorified and so was the Father. In Christ's prayer, we are reminded of Christ's begotten glory, that he voluntarily laid aside of his crucified glory, that he laid aside his glory for the glory of the triune God. We also read about Christ's manifested glory. In Jesus' prayer, um, we see Christ's glory manifested in three different ways, and I'll try to go through it quickly. But what we see is Christ manifests his glory to us, Christ manifests his glory in us, and Christ manifests his glory through us. So we'll look at those three things really quick. First off, Christ manifests his glory to us. Look at verse 6. 
Jesus says, I have manifested your name. In other words, that he has manifested the character and the personhood and the glory of the Father. He says, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Jesus says something like this just a few chapters ago when he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus manifests the glory of the Father. And so this was part of his earthly ministry was to, through his teachings, through his miracles, to manifest the glory of God to those that God had given to him. The second thing we see here is Christ manifests glory in us. Not only to us through his teaching and his miracles, but he actually manifests his glory in us. This one's going to take a little bit more time. I'm going to read verse 6 through 10. And as I read through that, if you could just kind of highlight the word gave. You can either underline it physically or mentally. Verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word, meaning that they have believed Jesus is the Christ, as he'll say here. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. It says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And then see how he concludes this. And I am glorified in them. How is Jesus glorified in us? Not, not through us by what we do, but how is Jesus glorified in us? Well, Jesus refers to a doctrine here that is controversial and offensive to uh, human pride in many ways, but he refers to it throughout this gospel, and it's the doctrine of limited or particular atonement, which says that Jesus came not, not to make salvation available to everyone, but to actually accomplish salvation for those God has given to him. Look in this passage in verse 2. Again, Jesus says he gives, not that he makes available, but that he gives eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. Verse 6 says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Jesus talked about this earlier in his ministry. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Later in that, he talks about some other things, like eat my flesh, things like that. But he goes on, he says, Do you take offense at this? And he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. And I love this phrase. He says, The flesh is no help at all. None. Your flesh is no help at all. And he said, this is why I told you that no one, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This doctrine of particular atonement, which I know may be up here right now for you, it's offensive today. It's always been offensive 
but it is really good news. I don't have time to dive into it because we're in a sub-point of a four-point sermon, which is... But this is such good news because Jesus doesn't just make salvation possible for us. He accomplishes salvation for us. If Jesus simply made salvation possible, all of us would still be in a whole lot of trouble. We sang this earlier, and I wrote it down because I messed it up in the first service. Oh, and I still... I don't know where I wrote it down. Anyways, I'm a big mess today. But it says, if you had not loved me first, I would reject you still. Something like that. What's it say, Jonathan? Refuse you still, right? We sang it. The good news is that Jesus doesn't doesn't make salvation possible. He actually accomplishes it for those whom God has given to him. And so what does this mean? It means salvation is all the work of God. It is all by grace. And therefore, the Trinitarian God gets all the glory. He's glorified glorified in us because he and he alone has worked in us. It is God alone who gives us ears to hear and eyes to see. It is God and God alone who gives life to dead people. It is God and God alone who breathes life into dry bones. It is God and God alone who softens our hearts and our minds to know Christ and to receive Christ. And it is God who conforms us into the image of Christ. And so you see Christ is glorified in us not because of what we do, but because what he has done inside of us to bring us from death to life and to conform us into his image. And so Christ manifests his glory to us in his teachings and his miracles. Christ manifests his glory in us by saving us, by redeeming us. And finally, Christ manifests his glory through us. Look at verse 22. Says the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus is speaking about union with Christ. Christ is united to the Father, we are united to Christ. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. We'll dive into this verse more next week. But in this passage, Jesus is reminding us of the union that we have in Christ. That that Christ, again, is united to the Trinity and we are united to Christ. And because of this union with one another, we can bear witness to the world. We can manifest the glory of Christ to those around us. I was visiting with a, with a woman recently who became a Christian not too long ago. And she came to Jacobswell Church and she said one of the things that, that was so overwhelming for her was how people loved one another, how people talked to one another, how people cared for one another. Now we all know we're not perfect at that, but all of that happens because of the union that we have in Jesus Christ. And it was a testimony to her and it is a testimony to the world that Christ has come, died, risen from the dead and lives in his people. And so we've seen so far that that Christ, we've seen Christ begotten glory, that he voluntarily laid aside. We've seen Christ crucified glory in his finest hour to give us eternal life. And we've seen Christ manifested glory to us, in us, and through us. Finally, we see Christ's heavenly glory. Verse 5, 
Jesus says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. In other words, after the death, resurrection, ascension into heaven, glorify me in heaven with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You know, it's interesting throughout this passage, you know, we we started the sermon saying we should not live for our glory, but for the glory of others. And and yet here it seems like Jesus is just praying for his glory at at the cross, at at, at the resurrection, the ascension. But, But we are reminded that Jesus wants glory, not for himself, but so that he can share it with others. Verse one, he says, glorify me so I can glorify you, Father. And even here we see that he he prays to the Father that he will be glorified in heaven, not for his own benefit, although that's okay because he's God and that's the point of the world, but so that we can enjoy him for all eternity. Look at verse 24 with me. It says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. What we have experienced of Christ on this earth is wonderful, but it is just a foretaste of the glory that we will experience with him in heaven. In this passage, Jesus says, I want them, my bride, my church, my people, our people to see my glory. This word see is much more than just visually viewing something. It's to enter into, to experience something. The King James Version translates it to behold. Christ says, I want them to come to me and to behold my glory, to enjoy my glory. You see, the end of Christ's glory story, which never ends, is that we go to be with him in his glory. That's why Paul can say, my desire is to die and be with Christ, which is far better. Not just better, but far better. Today is uh, Trish and I's 18th anniversary. We started dating about, yeah, you can clap for Trish. It's quite an accomplishment. (laughs) Yay, Trish. Um, And... uh, we started dating about a year and a half before I graduated college. I was going to the University of Missouri, and she was going to Eau Claire here in Wisconsin. And so we had a long-distance relationship. And we would talk on the phone almost every night, and we would send, you know, little packages and notes and letters and things like that. And it was great to be in relationship with her like that. But that was not enough. I didn't, I didn't just want that to be the entirety of our relationship. And so... On certain weekends, I would drive up 10 hours from Columbia, Missouri to, to Fall Creek, Wisconsin, where her home was, to visit Trish. I remember the first time I went up, and, uh, and her dad, I hope he's not listening to this podcast, but her, her dad, I was there for probably five minutes. He's like, hey, you want to help me? I'm like, okay, sure. I never met him before, so what am I going to say? No. But, uh, but so he's like, all right, come help me. And I'm like, all right. So I walk outside and he's like, let's hang up the Christmas lights. And I'm like, all the Christmas lights? Yeah, let's hang up the Christmas lights. I'm like, this is not why I drove 10 hours. Like I did not drive 10 hours. Like he's a great guy. He was trying to figure out if I was an okay guy for his daughter. I mean, there was a purpose and I fooled him obviously. But, but I came not to hang up Christmas lights, not to be in Fall Creek. I came because I wanted to be with Trish. I wanted to hold her hand. I wanted to laugh with her. I wanted to hug her. I wanted to walk with her. I wanted to enjoy her presence. 
And doing that from 10 hours away was not enough. I don't know if this is theologically correct, and so let me just use it as a, disqual- as a qualifier. But, it, but we're kind of in a long-distance relationship with Jesus. I mean, his spirit is in our hearts. His spirit is in our lives. And so we commune with him through that. But Jesus, physically raised from the dead, bodily is in heaven. We are in a long-distance relationship with him. But the day is coming where that long-distance relationship will end. When your faith will become sight and your prayer will become praise. Where you will be in the presence of the glory of Christ for all eternity. That is the end of this glory story, which has no end. Praise God. Praise God. Let me end with this. Um, I just got back from vacation, and, and while I was on vacation, I took my daughter Carissa on a date, and we went to go see the new Mary Poppins in the theater. And it was wonderful just to hug on her and to love on her and to watch Mary Poppins together. And, uh, and it, was, it was a pretty good movie, I thought, but... Imagine if I was in that movie, or really any movie, it doesn't matter, but imagine if I was an actor in that movie, and I was so excited that I rented out a theater, and I said, hey, y'all are invited, you know, Thursday night, 8 p.m. at this theater, I rented it out, come watch, I'm, I'm, a, I'm in this movie, right? And so you come, and you're watching the movie, and it's getting near the end of the film, and you haven't really seen me yet. But then at the end, I'm not going to give it away, I promise, but there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a festival in the park. Imagine if in the back corner of that park, I was one of the characters. What, what do they, an extra? Is that what they call it? I was an extra. And I said, look, there I am, there I am. And I, you know, bring an award up for myself and start thanking my mom and my dad and all the little people. And I say, you know, after, after the movie's done, I will, I will sign autographs for you and would love to have you. You know, we can talk about, you know, Hollywood and the movie life and all that stuff. You would say, you're crazy. Like you were just a speck in that movie. That movie was not about you. Friends, we are in the grand story of redemption. And I wouldn't call you an extra because you are priceless to God. But the story is not about us. The story is about the glory of God. And we are called to come into this wonderful, glorious story to play our part, not for our glory, but for the glory of the God who created us loves us, and redeems us. Let's pray. Lord God, I I pray that you would help our prayer life, our heart to be that of Jesus. That we would not just pray for a good day at work, but that our work would glorify you. That we would not just pray for a good marriage, but a marriage that glorifies you. God, give us the gift of self-forgetfulness so that we can take our eyes off of us and put it onto you and seek your glory in this world. Lord, as we turn to the table, we are reminded of the glory of the cross, that humiliating, horrific event that brought many sons and daughters to glory, that saved us from our sin, God, 
work in our hearts. Empower us through your spirit to live more and more for your glory and yours alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.